Welcome to episode 52 of the Rapid Change Matters podcast, a conversation with clinical hypnotist and specialist in hypno-oncology, Gary Coles. My name's Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm chatting with top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I've got big news. Rapid Changeworks is now running live training events, and you can check out the latest events coming up by visiting rapidchange.works, where you can also download a free, quick-to-read PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, along with all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. My next guest could be referred to as the hypnotherapist's hypnotherapist due to the number of hypnotherapists he offers treatment, training and mentoring for. He's also one of only a handful of people in the UK to hold an MSc in clinical hypnotherapy and is contracted to the NHS for hypnosis work where, for over 12 years, he has specialised in hypnotherapy within an oncological setting. So I'm sure today we'll offer some very interesting perspectives on all things change related. Welcome to the podcast, Gary Coles. Thank you very much, Howard. Thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, hopefully, yes, uh, can give some useful information to your listeners. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you and hoping we can jump straight in, really. Uh, and maybe you could tell us a little bit more about um, who you are, what you do, and really focusing on, on that origin story, how you got started. Uh, well, what I actually do is, is um, like a lot of people you interview, I'm a general hypnotherapist. Um, I would say I'm a clinical and medical hypnotherapist, uh, although I do have some specialisms. Um, one is um, I now seem to be considered to be one of the, the, the world authorities on hypno-oncology. Um, that is because uh, I'm one of the few hypnotherapists with a master's degree in clinical hypnotherapy. Uh, for that, I had to do a thesis and research, uh, and I actually did research into pre-surgical hypnosis and the effects it had in recovery quality in breast cancer operations. Um, that got me involved um, with not only with the breast cancer team, but I was actually embedded in the breast cancer multidisciplinary team. Um, so, uh, and, and the reason for that was because I spent 12 years uh, in a major hospital um, helping patients in the oncology unit once a week, uh, actually under the auspices of the, the NHS. Um, so the fact that I've had all that experience and then done the research in it, um, things have now gone full circle and I get invited um, all over the world. In fact, I've got to go to the States a couple of times this year to actually uh, speak at conferences on hypno-oncology uh, and have now actually started putting my own masterclasses together, uh, which, are, which are also sort of in demand worldwide. Uh, and as far as origin con is concerned, um, it's probably a, a little bit different to the majority of people, um, almost a, a bit fraudulent in a way. Um, I hear so many people saying, oh, I, I, this was what I always wanted to do, or I knew I had a calling to help people and so on. Um, if you'd have said to me um, three months before I became a hypnotherapist, you're going to be a hypnotherapist, um, I think I'd have laughed out very loud um, because that, that was the furthest thing on my mind to ever do as, as a career. Um, it, it was a rather strange idea. Um, my, my original career, I, I was an IT consultant in the oil industry. Um, so a very obvious switch to, to hypnotherapy, obviously. For sure. Um, but the, the upshot of that uh, was I'd spent many years doing that. Um, due to various reasons, that, that came to an end. And I just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. Uh, but I had absolutely no idea of what I was going to do. Um, and it was around Christmas time. So because I had an IT background, I set up a web store uh, selling books for Christmas. Uh, Christmas came and went. And I thought, what do I sell in January? 
And out of the blue, somebody offered me a job lot of um, hypnotherapy CDs for quit smoking and weight loss. Um, and I was surprised how well they sold. And I thought, oh, I didn't realize this was quite so popular. And like a, a lot of other people, as um, sort of my younger years, you have books on all sorts of weird subjects that you collect. Um, I had some hypnotherapy books, um, both stage and clinical. And I thought, oh, I will reread these. This is quite fascinating. Um, then I found that um, there was a, a, a local um, doctor of psychology was offering an introductory course. Um, so I thought, well, I've got plenty of time at the moment. So I'll go along and have a look. Um, I wasn't convinced by it at all. I thought it was a load of old rubbish uh, until um, he sorted out um, the nightmares uh, that I used to have. I used to have nightmares as a, as a child. Never really bothered me. I just accepted it. it was something that happened that four or five nights a week. I'd wake up punching, kicking, shouting, but then I'd go back to sleep again. Um, I worked with Do uh, Dr. Keith Herm for it was about four hours. Um, he told me all the techniques he was going to use. And I thought they were all rubbish because I didn't visualize. I didn't relax. I didn't respond with IMRs or anything else. Uh, and I just said, well, I've kept my eyes shut out of respect for who you are. Um, and it was about three weeks later when I realized that I hadn't had a nightmare since that I thought hmm, must be something in this. Um, so at that point, I decided to um, do a basic diploma in it. Uh, with the idea of perhaps um, I could do a little bit on the side, depending on whatever I decided to do as a career again. Um, so I did that. Um, then uh, everybody told me the difficult bit is actually gaining experience. Um, so a few weeks after I qualified, I had a phone call from the hospital saying, somebody's just told us that you qualified as a hypnotherapist. Um, would you like to donate some time here? Uh, and I thought, well, actually, yes. Uh, from a nursery point of view, I could go in there, get loads of experience and then disappear again. Um, so I decided I'd go go there. I was seeing eight patients a day. So my experience went through the roof rather quickly. And I'm still there nearly 13 years later. <laughs> so so I, uh, the idea of getting out quickly with experience didn't actually work. Um, I then fell into some other things. Um, I got involved with a hypnotherapist from the States who asked me to do some cancer research for them. Uh, they invite, uh, then took me under their wing, uh, taught me a lot of techniques that they perfected. Uh, that in turn uh, introduced me at a party in Harley Street to one of the TV doctors who became one of my patients and invited me to join his Harley Street practice. Um, and then I ended up with the opportunity to study academically, um, which obviously was, was down to doing the master's degree. Um, to do it, to make things really difficult for myself, I decided to do the medical research with, with the breast cancer pre-surgical work, uh, which a lot of people tried to talk me out of, but I, I persevered. Um, and that has since gone on to, to where we are today, that now I seem to be sort of one of the authorities on hypno-oncology, sort of um, talking about it all over the world, So uh, as wow. well as running um a, a business of five locations as a hypnotherapist fantastic fantastic quite 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 a whirlwind and uh <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. certainly a far cry from uh the it world it is yeah <laughs> all that time ago i i'm curious gary at the beginning when you said you know you obviously it was great you were seeing eight people a day in the hospital um you know with the initial intention of gaining experience what sort of things were you doing specifically so these eight eight people you know what were you working with them over uh it, it's still pretty much the same as i am now it's whatever whatever anybody comes in with when you're in the oncology unit in those days we used to do group sessions as well uh and the group sessions were really just guided visualizations so so they were quite easy to do and they were just purely for relaxation and uh, dealing with anxiety and that type of thing um i used to do a lot of that in conjunction with a music therapist there so we used to combine a nice little thing together of, of music and guided visualization together mm -hmm. uh but they no longer have a music therapist so so we I haven't done that for a number of years um it, it's really whatever anybody comes in uh, the hospital with uh, the majority of things that i will see will generally be anxiety related um around going through their cancer journey so it's mm -hmm. various options on stress worry panic and fear and so on um pre-surgical work pain control um, and, we, and we do a lot of work as well with side effects um, of, um, of treatment, such as um, sort of anticipatory nausea, um, that type of thing. Um, the, the, those are all quite common things that we would deal with. Um, we also do some experimental work with people uh, because obviously working with cancer patients, we're not allowed to actually say that we treat cancer patients. There is the 1939 Cancer Act. Um, so we do not treat cancer. 
Uh, we simply work with the, with the patient on their cancer journey. Uh, but in some cases, we do some experimental work with them. Uh, one of the interesting areas along that line is psychoneuroimmunology, uh, PNI, um, of which I'm giving talks throughout the world this year on that. So again, although we can't offer guarantees because it's, it's very experimental, there are, there are a lot of patients that are quite happily go along that route because they feel that it may be beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm I'm curious in that context of the hospital, um, how are you introduced? Are, are people saying, "Well, look, there's someone that can come and see you," or are you just turning up by their bedside and saying, "This is what I do"? Is there something that 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 you know that may be of use to you? Um, and, and what's the typical response to all of this? Uh, generally, uh, no, I don't turn up by somebody's bedside. Um, everybody I see there is is appointment based. Um, the, the hospital has a, a complementary therapy unit. Um, so there's not just hypnotherapy, there's other treatments as well. Um, there are a lot of leaflets um, and information about what the centre does, what the treatments are, are offered there. Uh, and generally, somebody will turn up and say, I've heard hypnotherapy might be useful. Uh, so they will ask to, to make an appointment with me um, or they might go and see a counsellor or a specialist there to, to talk about the issues they're having. And they might guide them into the idea of hypnotherapy to say, mm-hmm. well, actually, that you might benefit from this. So, so generally, although I get one or two people come in with no idea of what hypnotherapy is they're just curious that because they're allowed to have a therapy there they decided they want to experience hypnotherapy um those are the ones that you need to explain it with but generally the others possibly don't know what it is um but already have a belief that it may be of some sort of assistance with them and they've got some sort of idea uh, about what it's about it's it's interesting and i'm also curious going back to something you said um when you said you had it in mind that uh, you wanted to do your dissertation and your research on this particular topic that people mm. tried to talk you out of it you know yes. well, but why did they want to talk you out of it um well basically um, you're very time constrained uh, when you're doing a master's degree um uh, the original idea is i wanted to do a much much more in-depth uh, study to the one that i actually did um, but everybody said, um, well, I mean, the first one, and we, and we mentioned about language, it's the, it's the, it's the only slightly uh, rude word I will use, but uh, one, of, one of the people I knew is um, Wendy Dryden, um, the mm. CBT or REBTP um, sort of guru. Um, he practices in Harley Street at the same location as myself, so um, I meet up with him socially on occasions when we have a, a wine evening and something there. Uh, now, he uh, teaches at Goldsmith uh, at um, a master's degree for REBT, and uh, and he he was sort of the first one that uh, I, I met because he kept saying, "Have you decided what you're going to do your your research on yet?" And eventually, I said, "Wendy, I've decided now. I've I've decided what I'm going to do." Uh, and I told him, and he looked me in the eye and he said, "If you were one of my students, he said, I'd have told you not to have been so bloody stupid." <laughs> and I thought, "Well, there we go. That's there's a good a good reason." Um, and then um, the the other ones, everybody else said that uh, I would probably struggle time wise with it um, because the problem is is the amount of ethics involved if you then decide you want to do anything with the nhs um first of all the the university ethics it was the first time that they'd been involved with hypnotherapy and they were very panicky about the fact that i said i wanted to work with cancer patient um so they they actually rejected the first uh, ethics application we had to go through that again um then i had to go through nhs ethics which itself can be a very long process uh, and, he, and if it, luckily they didn't reject me because um, the first time I got rejected by the university and I think we tied up so many loose ends it went through the uh, NHS ethics in one hit uh, which is useful because if it doesn't it's about a four month cycle minimum each time you have to reapply. Uh, and then we also had um, local research and development ethics at the hospital, which, first of all, insisted that I had um, lots of other qualifications, such as good clinical practice certificates and various things like that, which I then had to attend at the hospital, um, which really amused me because um, they, they said that, oh, you can, you, you can only do this if you have a good clinical practice certificate. You know, if, if you're anybody res- involved in research must have that. Uh, and then when I actually went round sort of recruiting people, I found that none of the other surgeons, nurses, or anybody involved actually had one anyway and I seem to be the only person that did um, so that that was a, a little bit difficult um, and apart from that ethics application itself was quite lengthy um, because I went to the R&D unit at the hospital and I said I'd like to do some research and it was oh yes yes fantastic fantastic we love research we, we really want to support people doing research oh, that's that's what we really really want uh, and they said what would you like to do and you could see the demeanour and face <laughs> change when I said I want to do hypnotherapy with cancer patients <laughs> you could 
see the, the, the white disappearing out their face but, and sort of <laughs> but eventually we got through and um, and we did hit the time frame and, and it did all take mm. place which was good <clears throat> it's, uh, it's amazing and it's interesting this idea that you know when they heard hypnotherapy for cancer patients and you know that their, their face drained yeah it was a look of panic you know <laughs> are there other people that you come across within the medical establishments who you know have a dare i say an overt skepticism which they're happy to make known to you yes <laughs> um when i first um when i first had to pitch my idea because again the hospital was me was quite happy for me to do the research um on condition that the surgeons were quite happy uh, and the breast cancer team uh, and i had to go and do a pitch in front of the multi multidisciplinary team and that included uh, a died in the wall prof- teaching professor um and the, the senior breast surgeon and three other very high level breast surgeons um oncology nurses chemotherapy nurses um oncologists and uh, and various other people from research and radiography and and that was quite interesting Uh, the 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 professor it was as far as he's concerned it was quackery uh you know hypnotherapy is quackery um we had senior breast cancer surgeon who was very dismissive because um i got introduced and they said oh gary's here he just wants to do a two-minute presentation on some research and his attitude was um well we're very busy he can, he can do it at the end when we finish so i then had to sit there for two and a half hours while they did all their case histories before i could do my my two-minute pitch um <clears throat> and then um i, I got interviewed by um, the, the senior breast cancer surgeon uh, who um, was rather like one uh, and I can't think of the name on one of the TV programs that we watch who was very hard and hard as nails and uh, and was sort of giving the idea of um, why I'm a famous breast cancer surgeon why are you wasting my time um, and really tried to destroy me uh, until I found out that I think she was just testing that I wasn't going to be a time waster because eventually said she, she came back and said yeah that's fine we'll do that uh, and she was actually one of three breast cancer surgeons that then contacted me uh, and um, said, oh, if I wanted their elective lists moving around to accommodate me, they would be quite happy to do it. Wow. Um, uh, and once a couple of them started seeing um, changes and results, uh, things changed a little bit. And um, we also had one particular um, breast cancer surgeon, which was great. Um, he was very much on my side because um, uh, prior to him being at that hospital, he'd actually attended uh, an operation which was done without anaesthetic, just under hypnosis. So he was pretty convinced. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you know, Gary, this is the Rapid Change Matters podcast. And in the rapid fire round, I wanted to pick you up on something that you mentioned. And by the way, if there are listeners who uh, are tuning in going, rapid fire round? Where, where, where's that? What is that? Um, it's eight questions in two minutes. And uh, all of my guests go through this process. If you are joining us, and this is the first of these podcasts that you've heard, then scroll down underneath this episode. There is the rapid fire round. And uh, it's normally released a couple of days before the full episode goes out. And one of the first questions I asked, uh, Gary was what's the worst advice currently being given out within the world of change work Gary can you remind us what you said uh, yeah it was about doing everything fast you know rapid induction rapid technique content free uh, cure everything in six minutes or less uh, which we seem to hear a lot of at the moment uh, in particular the one that I seem to see a lot is that um, the rewind technique, or rather the fast phobia cure, as I tend to refer to it by, um, will will cure everything very quickly and they'll never have a problem again. Um, That type of thing I find a little bit irritating. Um, Mm -hmm. There isn't a one-size-fits-all, as far as I'm concerned, for any issue that you're dealing with, because every issue is slightly different. Every client or patient you see is slightly different. So so there isn't a one-size-fits-all. As far as I'm concerned, you do what works. and that's one of the pieces of advice I give when people ask. What, uh, uh, the other irritating thing I find is, uh, is all the posts I see on Facebook. What is the best technique for? What is the best script for? And I'm oh, afraid my Gary, stock I've arts, never seen any of those posts. Haven't you? Uh, <laughs> obviously looking on the wrong ones. But, uh, and I'm, I'm afraid that sometimes if I'm in a bad mood, my stock arts will be the one that works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because sure. as far as I'm concerned, that, that's what it is. Now, there are some very good content-free rapid techniques uh, and, and I use quite a few of them myself um, but I will tend to use them to augment other things that I do uh, to me they're not standalone techniques um, and I've had lots of arguments with, with people about um, the fast phobia cure as far as I'm concerned it's not particularly permanent it's a very fast um, 
uh, technique. It's a, it's a very fast piece of change work, uh, and it's useful at the time to get over a specific situation. I personally don't think it's particularly permanent uh, in a lot of cases. It can be, uh, but it isn't. Uh, and whenever I say that, people tend to th- sort of have a real go at me, or you're obviously not doing it correctly, or the person that taught you obviously doesn't know what they were doing, uh, until I point out to them that the person that actually taught me and told me that was uh, a guy called Richard Bandler. And then it goes a little bit quieter, because he himself said to me that he doesn't think it's particularly permanent, and it quite often has to be carried out every few months to reinforce it, which a lot of people don't seem to think or know. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, that that's absolutely fascinating. And, and by the way, and I know some of my regular listeners will know this, but for me, I define rapid change as um, as quick as it can be done. And that doesn't yeah. mean quicker and it doesn't mean slower. I rail against the people that start out working with a client going, uh, yes, yeah, so we start you out with the 12 session approach. And I think, how can you do that? You haven't even spoken to them yet. How do you know? Yeah. Um, uh, but it's also not to say that, um, you know, I don't think people can get quick results. I think rapid results can happen, can be quick. Um, but I think there is a dangerous mentality that sometimes I see, and I agree with you, that, um, you know, oh, yes, we just use this one protocol, which we just repeat, you know, and in six minutes, there you go, done. Yeah, I, I think there is a, a lot of things that either people have just jumped onto the latest technique, which generally is something earlier that's been repackaged, and it's the, the greatest thing since sliced bread that you can use with just about everything. Um, or, or they do get this idea of, um, oh, yes, I, I've learned the fast phobia cure, that's, that's what I will use for everything. Mm. So... Before you were told that by Richard Bandler uh, about it not being a, a permanent cure or a permanent result. I mean, it can be, but it, it isn't necessarily. Is that so? I mean, had you experimented with it and, and discovered that, that for you it just wasn't, you know, working in uh, that way? No, actually, that, that was when, when I was first taught it was by mm. Richard Bandler. And, and at the time he did a demonstration which to me didn't appear to work. Uh, and that was his answer to that, that, yes, it, it is something that is very quick, can work very well. Sometimes you need to plug at it, but also it isn't necessarily particularly permanent. And Chris's mm-hmm. uh, attitude was, well, OK, if it gets somebody over a major phobia and they have to have a session every six months, does that really matter? You know, it's still getting them over the problem. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's interesting because I, I've often talked about this on the podcast with people, which is I think some people fail to make a distinction between a technique that's designed to demonstrate a point in training and good therapy or good therapeutic practice. So I see some people doing demos on stage, which are designed to look impressive and have an immediate state change or state shift. Yeah. But it wasn't intended as a, this is a long-term lasting change. It was to show how quick something can be done or as a way of starting. And then sometimes people I worry in an audience might go away and go, well, that's it. That's how you just do that thing. Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, it is. And I, I think that there's to an extent there that because um, it's an unregulated industry and courses quite often are shorter and shorter, um, people just want to learn quick things. Uh, and, uh, and, People again, the majority of hypnotherapists, in my opinion, tend to be part timers anyway. They tend to have had sort of a minimum amount of training, and um, because of that, they they quite often only know one way to do something anyway. Uh, they've got no other interest in in doing it another way because that's how they were taught, and if that's how they were taught, that must be the correct way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And I've seen some classic examples of that. I remember going to a, a CPT day uh, with somebody and got chatting to um, uh, somebody at lunchtime. And we were, we, we were talking just a curiosity about uh, street hypnosis. And, and we had a, a group of people there that were, were sort of dismissing the idea of no such thing as street hypnosis um, because the, they, they'd all just... Uh, currently qualified they'd, they'd done solution focused hypnotherapy and one of the things that they were, were told uh, uh, were taught was that you could only possibly hypnotize somebody if it was in a quiet environment um, if they were laying down in a darkened room uh, therefore street hypnosis couldn't possibly happen because it wouldn't be laying down in a darkened room uh, and then we were arguing well actually you can hypnotize somebody in all sorts of places and it doesn't matter how loud it is and all this they, they were very dismissive no no you're wrong this is what we were taught <laughs> so mm. I think it takes a special kind of person to be able to go on a training and to pull out the stuff that is useful with, but also have a healthy ability to disregard and to question. 
and to further explore. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it, that depends on who's teaching because there are a lot of uh, sort of teaching. I'm not going to mention any names, but you get some sort of teaching areas where, again, they're they're just teaching what they were taught, and, mm. and they possibly don't know the underpinnings of it. Uh, in which case, if you question it, it's well, no, this is how it's done. This is correct, and they they can't really back it up with anything, or, or generally are quite dismissive or don't want to get involved. Um, now, I can pick things that I think are useful out because, uh, um, I mean, it's not sort of meant to sound egotistical or whatever, but but I, I still like to go to conferences. I still like to go on um, short training courses. Um, but quite often I'm very disappointed by them because I uh, uh, the last half a dozen sort of short training courses I've done, um, I've learned very, very little. Um, mm. Because to me, they're just things that I already knew just packaged up in a slightly different way um, or given a different name. Uh, but that doesn't mean to say that they weren't worthwhile because it, then it's seeing how somebody else does something. And, and there might be the, the odd subtle nuance that you can pick up on that you weren't using that they do. You can think, well, actually, I'll incorporate that into my or the odd phrase that they might be using that you think, well, actually, that that would that is a better phrase than I'm using. So I will incorporate that into what I'm doing. So I, I often pick up things like that that are just very, very tiny rather than the overall thing. Mm. On a slightly different note, there might be people who are fascinated by this idea of working uh, with the NHS or in a hospital environment or, or with the, the medical profession. Um, if there are people out there and they want to get involved with that, what, what advice uh, would you have for them? How can they go about getting more established within that area? Uh, well, certainly, if you want to, to do anything within a hospital or something like that, probably the best place to start uh, will be a charity of some description, um, either a hospital charity, uh, complementary therapy, therapy charity, or a hospice or something like that. Um, doctors themselves generally do not want to know. Uh, um, so if you're approaching GP practices, generally, the majority will not even let you put a leaflet in there or a, a poster up on the wall. Um, again, I'm quite lucky. I have one of my practices in a GP surgery, and I was actually asked to practice there um, because of my reputation uh, and um, most of the clients I see there are GP referrals yeah. uh, saying that they are all private referrals because I I've never found a GP that's willing to fund it out of their own budget so you know, it's, but, it's really interesting you say that I, I came across someone that I hadn't met before a couple of weeks ago uh, and got chatting and it turned out they had spent what the last 30 years working as a GP mm. and had packed it up and had retrained as a hypnotherapist uh, recently mm. and she thought she said foolishly i thought that because i had a background as a gp that when i approached other gps for for referrals they would be more open to it and that has not been my experience even despite yeah. my background yeah no and that is generally the case i mean it, it, it is it is seeing results it's result driven as far as gps are concerned again i'm quite lucky um what, what i didn't realize until a couple of weeks ago um i had a quick uh, with the doctor's surgery i'm in one doctor who's very good refers lots of people to me, particularly anxiety and depression based. Uh, another one varies. And I had one that was a little bit anti, uh, but I noticed in the last few weeks he started to send more to me. Uh, and I didn't realize uh, why. And it turned out that I, I, I did a quit smoke, a smoking cessation session a couple of weeks ago with somebody. And I said, oh, how did you find out about me? And they said, oh, my doctor recommended you. And I said, um, oh, that's rather strange because I said he, he's been the, the sort of the most sceptical uh, of the doctors at the surgery. And, uh, and he turned around and said, um, no, because he said uh, he's come around to it because apparently he, he sent his mother to you for smoking cessation but didn't tell you. And uh, he's gobsmacked by the results. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so that that was quite useful. Uh, and then I had another one with a, a GP, a GP at a different surgery, um, when again was quite dismissive because um, I had a patient um, came to me for borderline personality disorder, uh, and um, being very ethical and correct, I contacted the GP to say, "Are you happy that that I can work with this person?" Uh, and they were quite dismissive, saying, "Oh, yes, you're not going to cause any harm. You know, just get on with it, do what what you like." type thing um until i've uh, t anyway th this this person that i work with wrote me a wonderful letter say that i totally transformed her life and she was now living rather than existing and um and the gp actually admitted that i'd made more difference in five sessions than anything they'd sent her to in 15 years and uh, now sends me a succession of borderline personality disorder <laughs> patients to work with so so again once they see results um they do come on the side um certainly 
for charities and hospitals, um, they do want people generally that, that meet the natural occupational standards or the core curriculum. Um, that That's probably the easiest way of doing that is to be a member of something like the Complementary and Natural, natural Healthcare Council, the CNHC, um, so that they can see um, what, what the, you know, the core curriculum is so that, that, that at least they've got an idea. Mm. Uh, and in fact, interestingly enough, as an aside, um, I still think more training than the minimum is required for people, but um, um, I, I was actually on the um, profession-specific board of the CNHC for hypnotherapy, and, and I was one of the team of three that put the um, core curriculum together. So if you're struggling with it, blame me. I'm one of the people <laughs> that put it together. Gary, Gary, Gary. Um, <laughs> so, something like CNHC, another body that, that actually has a, a government-accredited register to it, mm. um, despite the fact that the GMC recommends people that are on accredited registers but the average GP has got no idea there is such a thing. Well, I think one of the big difference, differences uh, that I found is actually having bothering to study for the master's degree. Um, because once you've got the master's degree, a lot of people say, oh, it's irrelevant, it's not necessary, you know, you're doing in-depth studying things that you don't need to do. Um, I find it gives a very useful underpinning um, to, to issues you're going to work with, because you have an understanding of the psychological aspects, the psychosomatic aspects, and, and so on. And I find that because I've got a master's degree, uh, medical professionals take me far more seriously because it's not a Mickey Mouse certificate or diploma. It's something they actually recognize. So, so I, th I feel that that makes quite a difference as well. For sure. So, I, I mean, I, I really like that. And there's a theme as well, which is just, you know, in many ways, you know, worrying less about it and just really focusing on doing really good quality work with great training uh, and background and you never know who you're seeing and you know referrals start coming through i mean I, i've had experiences where you end up working with people and you don't know who they are or who they know and the way they tell people about the results they've had leads to interesting and good things so you know focus on yeah. just being the best hypnotherapist you can be is useful. yeah I, I think the idea of looking at the underpinning behind things is, is to me is a very important thing uh, and in particular in in the hypno-oncology work that i do um because we, we all know that rapport is a big thing com client confidence is a big thing and uh, if you start seeing somebody in a hospital environment um they treat that the patient will treat you the same as the surgeon the oncology nurse or anybody else you're another professional in the loop of people they're seeing mm. and they will have absolute confidence in you unless you give them reason to doubt you uh, now you'll quite often get a patient will come in and say oh i've got i've got breast cancer it's stage four phase three blah 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 um i've had a lumpectomy i'm now on this this protocol of drugs uh, and so on and I've got a problem with uh, and it might be oh, I've got a problem with a phobia with my pick line now if you suddenly glaze up at any of that you're going to lose them completely because I think this guy doesn't know what they're talking about why is he here mm. um, they will expect you to know the jargon the background to, to the illnesses the treatments they're having and so on um, and that's why I do my hypno-oncology courses because I think it's very very important for people to have to understand all that um, otherwise you'll just lose the patient because they just won't have confidence in you so i was going to ask you what specifically would people be covering if they came and trained with you on a on one of your hypno oncology courses uh, essentially we will look uh, at um a lot of the background how cancer's formed what causes it why it causes um looking at, at um how it progresses how it changes how it's graded how it's staged um the terminologies that are used the different types of cancers they are um we will also look at the treatments that are involved with each types of cancers and then we'll look at the most common side effects um that, that happen with with each type of cancer um and then we will then i give people a lot of interventions a lot of techniques a lot of uh, fast and rapid techniques that because quite often in hospital you'll see somebody who's in a panic situation or an anxiety situation that needs to be resolved there and then so that's when you do need the very rapid techniques and um, so we will teach a lot of rapid techniques we will teach other techniques for slightly longer term approaches for if you're dealing with several sessions with people um, and, and a lot of ways of reframing things for them and how to get into the business a little bit on psychoneuroimmunology mm -hmm. um, which, which is a great area and, and, and lots of other things like that so that, that's a, a very quick sort of type of thing that we do T tell, tell me more about pni because uh, i know you're you're going to be presenting uh, on that aren't you um, yeah, I haven't written it yet, but <laughs> on it, yeah well you should write it now on the spot while you're doing this podcast recording yeah, yeah that, that, that's <laughs> right um, no it, it's, it is a very fascinating area uh, and the way uh, and 
you talk to people and say, well, how, how can how can it work? And I mean, the, the theory, but for those that don't know, the, the, the theories behind psychoneuroimmunology is that um, the mind can influence the makeup of the immune system. That, that, that is the fundamental behind it. Uh, now, a lot of people would poo-poo that. Well, how can the mind uh, do anything to do with the immune system? Well, first of all, we get old wives' tales that, you know, people get generally get ill, they get colds and things when they're down. So therefore, if somebody's anxious or depressed, they seem to be more prone to illness. So, so there, there's a good example. Um, but the idea of the mind being able to change the body uh, probably the best example I give of that is uh, with another area that, that I, I, I do some work with, which is um, unexplained infertility, uh, which is a very an, an IVF. Uh, and uh, and I say to, to people that this is much more understandable. But I said, if you imagine that somebody is panicking because they're not getting pregnant, um, they're starting to become anxious. Um, if they become anxious, that actually decreases estrogen production. So therefore, they have less chance of falling pregnant. If they then fall into depression, uh, and I can't think of the chemical off the top of my head because it wasn't something I was expecting to, <laughs> to speak about. Uh, but if they fall into depression, um, I believe there's an excretion of a chemical uh, that is also excreted during lactation. Mm. And it's the idea is, again, is to prevent pregnancy, because if they're lactating, they're obviously feeding an infant and that's the time they don't want to become pregnant. Um, so therefore, already we've got less estrogen production and something preventing pregnancy that are being caused by the person's state of mind. So we have a bodily change caused by state of mind now even with very basic hypnotherapy uh, stabilization of the patient so if we're dealing with the anxieties the stresses um, just stabilizing them then theoretically we can get that back to normal we, we can we can rebalance the hormonal system so already we can indicate that by using mind techniques or hypnotherapy we can actually rebalance the hormonal system mm. so, so, so therefore there's no reason why the same thing can't be happening with the immune system uh, and there is some interesting research there uh, that seems to indicate that that could well be the case yeah i am reminded actually gary um of, of one of my most unpublishable testimonials i ever got written that can't appear anywhere uh publicly because they wrote i, I saw them for fertility uh because they were very anxious and they wanted mm. to relax and uh, she wrote me this testimonial that said after six you know a year of trying and not not being able to conceive after one session with Howard, I found myself pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I thought that, that re if you read that the wrong way, it doesn't sound quite right. Um, it doesn't, but it, it's, it's the useful sort of things that if you're trying to do any marketing, it's the sort of things that, that you know, your average red top reader would, would jump and look at. And I must admit, I, I did a, a similar article in um, one of the um, sort of freebie local papers. They, they wanted a series of things on, on hypnotherapy. And I wanted some nice catch lines on it uh, uh, to, to, to draw people in. And I actually did a, a piece on unexplained, uh, unexplained infertility and hypnotherapy. Mm. And I must admit, the headline at the top of the at the top of the piece was "My hypnotherapist got me pregnant." <laughs> yes, but uh, yeah, the, the ambiguities that appear in people's testimonials do uh, do tickle me. I received one a few weeks ago from someone who wrote to me and said. I took my 11-year-old to see Howard, who's been a bedwetter for many years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gary, tell me, are there a couple of examples, uh, real case studies, real things that you can share um, of people that have come in or you've seen them, you've worked with them, and there's been some rapid shifts that have lasted? Uh, yeah. Um, outside of the oncology area, I think probably the, the best sort of more recent one I had was um, actually with sports performance. I, I worked with an ice hockey player and he'd come back from an injury and um, and uh, knocked his confidence. He didn't think he was playing very well. And the press got onto his back. Um, he was a foreign ice hockey player in a foreign country. Uh, but the press got onto his back and was saying that he was the worst import the team had ever bought. Uh, which didn't help his confidence at all. Um, he did some sessions with me and contacted me again to thank me that he'd just been voted player of the season uh, at the end of the season. So that, so that, that was a nice, uh, a, a nice, very good example. So from uh, from the worst import to player of the season in the in the space of a couple of months, which I thought was excellent. Fantastic. Uh, 
Yeah, that's, that's probably probably the the, the 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 most recent one. I mean, certainly, again, in hospital, um, some of the fast interventions we have to do is even things just where you've got somebody who's too frightened to have a scan or a blood test or, or even going to the operating theatre. And obviously, if you can get them to overcome that and, and go in and have that scan done or into the operating theatre, then obviously that is a, a very rapid change. Uh, and quite often we're, we're called to do that in, in hospital. Do, do you think it's important to begin to get this message that rapid change can happen? And I say that really because whilst I know on the one hand there are concerns over these sort of uh, one protocol merchants, you know, promising the five minute fix for, for all ails. Um, on the other hand, my experience is, is that a lot of the general population think that change and personal change is about sort of sitting on a couch for, for hours and hours and hours while someone with a goatee beard sort of asks them to free associate and, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe that will make a difference or maybe not. But it's it's seemingly that long-winded process. So I, I guess my question is, is, is how important do you think it is to, to get people to appreciate that change really can happen? Um Obviously, they do need to appreciate. I mean, the idea of it taking years and often and, and things like that. I mean, the proponents for that, I think, are what we call psychologists, aren't they? Uh, generally, um, I, I, I go along sort of both sides, really. I mean, rapid change can happen uh, and quite often does. But again, I'm a great believer that the rapid change isn't necessarily permanent. Um, we've made a rapid change. Um, but there were still reasons that were underpinning why they had the problem in the first place. Um, so I'm, I'm a great believer that the idea is you do need to address um, some of the, the underlying causes, whether that's parts therapy or regression therapy or so on. Um, because to my mind, a lot of the cases is that um, basically you, you can make a, a fast change, a rapid change. But quite often, um, in my opinion, you're papering over the cracks. Uh, if it's a deep-rooted problem, you're, you're papering over the cracks. So the problem is still there. They just can't see it at the moment, which is why it is not a permanent solution. Again, using the fast phobia cure for as an example, you might address a phobia with it. You're papering over the cracks, but the cracks are still there, and, and they will gradually reappear over time. Whereas, to, to my mind, is you do need to go a little bit further to make permanent change as opposed to just rapid change. But again, that doesn't have to be hundreds of sessions and years of sessions. Uh, and again, it depends what you classify rapid. Uh, I mean, I, I would be rather upset um, if I see um, a client for more than four sessions. Now, to me, I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't call that necessarily rapid change, but a lot of other people would. Um, because it's not as rapid as one session, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's interesting. And I think uh, a lot of it is how we define and how we term, you know, what rapid actually means. Um, and for sure, I think the important thing is that it has to be lasting. Uh, and there has to be a, yeah. a focus on uh, that. Uh, ab absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that that's good. How do you go about getting feedback and testing to make sure that things really are working? That, that's it. Uh, again, at the hospital, um, we do, do there, there is Mysore and, and so on, various protocols of forms they have to fill in. So they are followed up uh, by the NHS. Uh, with my own clients, uh, I must admit, I don't tend to. Um, and, and I'm in two minds of whether to or not. I mean, obviously, that's going to get more difficult with the, the latest data protection things anyway. Um, but, I, but two people have, have sort of given me two different pieces of advice. One person said, oh, you always need to follow up just to find out how well things have gone uh, and so on. Uh, whereas the other side of it says, oh, no, once somebody has le left your room, they don't want contact with you again they don't want to be reminded that, that they had a problem you know you may even be putting unwittingly putting indirect suggestion in there by starting to discussing it again and so on uh, and you know they don't want to admit they'd even have treatment so, so they would rather they never heard from you again so so there is that two sides to it um certainly from my point of view i don't tend to follow up um but i know generally that things have been successful by the fact that my, my website's rubbish. Um, I don't advertise, um, but yeah, I get a healthy amount of clients coming through, and with about seventy to eighty percent uh, are referrals from mm. previous clients, doctors, and so on that have seen the results. So, yeah. uh, or patients that have come back to de to deal with something else. For sure, for sure. Um, Gary, I, I'm I'm curious if people are listening to this uh, and they are keen to hear more from you. Uh, where can they go? Given that given that you said your website is not 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 as as you would hope it could be. 
Uh, no, I would avoid my website like plague, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, probably the, the easiest place to get me is is I do have a, a Facebook page um, that I use quite a lot. Um, it's no, it's not my no, my named page. It's actually um, Release Hypnotherapy. So it's facebook.com slash Release Hypnotherapy. Uh, uh, and, and that's my main one. I do have an oncology, a couple of oncology ones, various other things. But that that's that's the good starting point is, is Release Hypnotherapy uh, as a Facebook page. Uh, and they can find me there. Well, we will put the links underneath the episode. Gary, I, I'm, and this is the, the, the final question, and I often finish oh. up with this, and there's no, uh, no pressure is intended, but this is often the place where most people who I interview come out with the most amazing things. Right. When we talked about you coming on the Rapid Change Matters podcast and sharing with right. us some thoughts around change and some of your ideas and thinking, um, is there anything that you'd like to bring up and share with our listeners but that I just haven't asked directly? Um, no, I think I think we've covered most things. I mean, I, I would say really for the industry, you need to be as professional as possible, um, study as much as possible. Um, I would say study with many different people, learn different styles, different approaches, and so that you can then question um, different approaches. You know, don't, just don't do it one way. You have a toolbox. There's, there's again, the, the, the bugbear that I mentioned earlier, this idea about what is the best script for or what is the best technique for. Um, and again, the standard answer is the one that works with the client in front of you. Um, so so just, just have a, a really good toolbox. Understand the underpinnings of what you're dealing with. Um, that, that that I think is is what's going to really put us forward. Um, you know, don't don't start quoting things that you can't empirically evidence. Is is another good one. Um, I did have a bit of a disagreement with somebody. Um, again, I, I seem to have quite a lot of disagreements for some reason uh, on Facebook with them. Um, Again, it was somebody asked uh, about borderline personality disorder, which which I have a lot of experience with, and um, uh, and this person uh, had come around and said, um, "Oh, well, I, I, I I cure I cure that in one session," uh, and uh, and somebody said, "Oh, well, how do you do that?" And he said, "Oh, well, it's a genetic disorder, so I switch off the faulty gene that's causing it using hypnosis." Uh, and uh, so I said, "Well, first of all," and I gave my advice and said, "Well, first of all, as hypnotherapists, we don't cure." Uh, we don't even treat as such. We assist in, in, in the person's journey uh, and, and assist in facilitating change and so on. Uh, and uh, and then this person jumped on me and saying, are, are you claiming that I'm not curing people uh, and saying you're, you're dissing my approaches that I'm not curing people? And I say, say, well, OK, I said, you're claiming that uh, you're curing somebody uh, by sw- making a genetic switch. I said, um, can you give me your empirical evidence to prove that you're making a genetic switch? Uh, I said, are, are you doing that through blood tests? Uh, how, how, are you, how are you empirically evidencing that? Uh, and the answer that came back was the client says they were feeling better. And I think, well, that doesn't actually move, prove that you're switching a genetic switch. That just move, means that whatever you're doing is making an improvement with them. Mm-hmm. It, it is that they are. It is facilitating an improvement. But a, it's not proving you're curing anything, and b, it's certainly not proving you're you're switching a genetic switch. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the person was quite adamant that he was a curative hypnotherapist, not a clinical hypnotherapist, <laughs> and that's how he worked. So, <laughs> well, when it comes to empirical uh, evidence, we all know that sixty-seven point three percent of people make statistics up yeah 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 you know it's crazy but uh, to me empirical evidence is where we're going and it's things like that um that that, you know oh yes i can cure somebody by flicking a switch just like that with no evidence um the one that really irritates me in my area the idea is all we can cure cancer by regression to cause and then then changing whatever it was that caused it in the first place you know there was no evidence for any any of this type of stuff and and it's things like that and and that's why i want to to talk this year about pni because it is an interesting subject but we do need to sort of look at the empirical evidence and not jump ahead thinking we can do all sorts of things um, because the problem we get is, is somebody will see something and think oh yes we can, we can switch a switch we can do this oh isn't that fantastic uh, and and that's where we get shot down as therapists that's where why we're not taken seriously within the medical industry and the health industry is because we just make really stupid claims do you think is there a danger uh, as well presumably on behalf of, of of people who are vulnerable who are seeking help support you know seeing you know, claims like, oh, you know, we can cure cancer. Very much so. Uh, again, the patients that I work with, OK, it is illegal in this country with the, the, the 1939 Cancer Act. Um, but I've worked with with patients, not just with cancer, um, but with, with other sort of very 
degenerative disorders. Uh, and, and I get patients seeing me in hospital saying, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I've started following this diet and, and, uh, and, and wheatgrass drinks and this. And I'm going to see this specialist in Germany who charges £2,000, but he can do this, this and this. And, and people, you know, the, and even people I say on, see online, you know, I had somebody contacting me saying, oh, my, my sister's got terminal cancer. You know, is there something you can do? You're, you're an expert on, on this area. Is there something you can do? And I said, well, we can make her journey easier. And I said, oh, you can't, you can't cure it. Isn't there something you can do that's going to make a difference that's going to cure it? And I said, no, because we cannot treat it. We, we don't do that. Mm. And, and people just become very, very desperate. They will spend any amount of money and they will clutch any straw that's given to them, however tenuous, silly or expensive, just because they are very, very desperate at that stage. What, what, what would you say to the people out there who, uh, you know, cite, uh, you know, the numerous cases of spontaneous remission? Uh, that are so often cited as you know these yeah. things happen. Uh, yeah, um, they're interesting. Um, uh, and again, I have heard a lot of this. Uh, I've heard um, people claiming it at conferences. Um, uh, again, I heard. Well, I, t- I saw one claim at a conference that they'd worked with some type of cancer fifteen years ago, and it uh, went into regression. Uh, and then they said that now they've done it again with the same type. And I think, well, two cases in 15 years is not even a coincidence, um, let, let alone that proving that you're doing it. Um, and quite often when I've actually asked the people for more of the facts on the, the, this spontaneous regression, um, they suddenly aren't able to give me any evidence at all of where it's written down, um, what protocols were used, who the person was or anything else. It, it seems to be very, very vague. Uh, and in fact, even to the extent um, of there are some people that make a great living out of supposedly curing themselves in those areas. And I'm not going to name any names, um, uh, but um, even in those areas, you know, they, they sell lots of books and personal appearances and so on. And we've had the odd person that has appeared at the hospital um, to, to give a presentation. And again, uh, with minders. And uh, when questions started to be asked on diagnoses and techniques and other things, everything was suddenly hushed up and pushed away. It was sort of an area we're not going to go into because uh, mm. and I'm thinking, well, is that because we're in danger of damaging a very lucrative career if we know all the facts? Um, so, again, yes, the, I, I'm not denying there aren't cases of spontaneous uh, regression and so on, but they need to be more documented. You know, is it just that it's spontaneous? doesn't mean to say any, any intervention uh, that, that we've done has, has had an impact, mm. yeah. which is unfortunate. But so, again, yes, we, we need more, more evidence, more facts. Because uh, the more evidence, the more facts you've got, at least you've got some things to analyse or make up statistics with. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, Gary, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon uh, and chatting. Um, uh, I found it fascinating. And it's a whole area uh, of work that uh, I think is incredibly important. And, uh, yeah, it, it's absolutely interesting, very interesting thinking about the ramifications and our communication within that sphere. So thank you uh, for spending some time with us. Yes, well, thank you for inviting me to to come on. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapid change matters hyphen podcast. And of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those upcoming live events that will help you hone those change work skills.